verse 3, Daniel continues, I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God. Father, this morning we pray to you and we ask that you would teach us to pray. As the disciples asked Jesus, so we ask that our communication with you would be meaningful and fulfilling. Teach us, Lord, through Daniel's own experience, Daniel's own prayer, those essential elements and principles that would cause our communication with you to be right. In Jesus' name. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. That was my first experience with talking to God. And it worked for a long time. I actually used that. In fact, I still use that. No, I'm just kidding. But prayer is very big on the minds of many people these days. There's a controversy going on in our public school system. Should there be prayer in schools? Of course, I think you've heard it, as long as there are final exams to take, there will always be prayer in public schools. But I found an article out of, believe it or not, Glamour magazine, it was given to me, on the relationship between God, prayer, and public life. And uh, the survey uh, said that 64% of those surveyed said there's too little mention of religion and God in the public systems school system and in public life. There's too little mention of God. The survey went on to say 60% said that prayer should not be excluded from school. So they said, okay, now, would you be offended if before games, if before graduation services, prayer were to be given? 72% said absolutely not. Then they were asked this question, should students be allowed to meet on school property after school hours for prayer sessions or Bible classes, 75% said yes. In the same year that that survey was given, two years ago, Newsweek reported that 78% of the American public prays once a week, 57% of America prays every day or even more. But the issue at hand is the effectiveness of our prayer. I know a lot of people pray. I know that it's becoming more and more popular to become more and more spiritual in this country. But this text this morning answers the question, what makes for an effective prayer life? What makes for an effective prayer life? So that prayers are answered. And we already saw in verse 23 that Daniel's prayer was answered even before he could finish it. That's pretty amazing. So we want to glean some essentials from it. I heard about a couple who had a parakeet, and the only thing this uh, little parrot could say was, um, let's, uh, let's kiss. It was the only vocabulary it had is, let's kiss. And uh, the preacher of the church found out that they had a parakeet, and he had one too. The only words his parakeet could utter were, let's pray. So he decided, hey, let's get them both together in the same cage, and put them in the same cage. And true to form, the couple's parakeet said, Let's kiss. To which responded the preacher's parakeet, My prayers have been answered. <laughs> he learned something new. 
A lot of people say, I pray all the time to God. I have a relationship with God. How do you know? Well, I pray. But there is prayer that though a person utters it, does absolutely no good. Did you know that? Oh, it makes the person feel good about themselves, but the prayer itself is not effective. It does no good at all. Remember, Jesus said, when you pray, do not be like the pagans, he said, who think that they will be heard because of their much praying. Isn't that interesting? Even pagans, Jesus said, pray. So not all prayer is effective prayer. First of all, we know that prayer has to come through a relationship with Jesus Christ, to God the Father, through Jesus Christ. One of the noticeable features about Jesus' own life is that He prayed. It was something the disciples picked up on. And the disciples, of all of the requests they could have asked Jesus, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to preach. Lord, teach us theology. They wanted neology. They wanted to learn how to pray and how to, how to have an effective prayer life with their Father. Last week we gave you a quote by Charles Spurgeon. I'd like to play off that quote this morning. Let me refresh your memory. He said, Prayer pulls the rope down below and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Well, if he likens prayer into a rope, then Daniel chapter 9 gives four strands that woven together form the rope that effectively pulls the bell from down below into the ears of God. Four strands that make for effective prayer. Let's call the first strand, which I see in verse 4, humble adoration. That's the first strand of that effective rope that pulls the bell. Humble adoration. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, now his prayer begins, O Lord, the term is used Adonai, O Adonai, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him, with those who keep His commandments. He opens up his prayer and it's directed to God. I know it sounds very, very obvious and simplistic, but prayer to be effective has to be prayer to God. You say, well, isn't all prayer prayer to God? No, it's not. In fact, there's a lot of prayer that is offered that has little or no concern at all for God. Did you know that? Jesus said two men went up to the temple to pray, one a tax collector, one a Pharisee. And the Pharisee prayed thus with himself, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. But Jesus said he prayed with himself. He did it obviously out loud and he was impressed by his own prayer. Sounds pretty good. I'm a good prayer warrior, just listen to me. You can have an invocation read before a meeting with really no concern or direction to God himself. True prayer has to be offered to God. Daniel offers his prayer to Adonai, which is an adoring kind of a term. Often the Jewish people would substitute the name of God, which was Yahweh, for the term, the title, Adonai, a title of reverence unto God. Then in the same verse he calls him great and awesome. Gadol v'yare in Hebrew. Translated it means great in magnitude and importance, to be held in astonishment, dread, reverence, honor, and respect. Prayer is, first of all, a submission to God. And that means we recognize who we're praying to. 
We're not praying to an essence or a force somewhere up in the sky that surrounds us all and that is in us all, but to a holy God, separate from sinners, awesome in magnitude, and we bow before Him as an act of submission. That's how Jesus taught us to pray, by the way. He said, in this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we begin every service that we have here with worship, with singing unto God. Because worship or adoration is a response to who God is. Praise is a response to what God does. But when we sing and we open up a service, the purpose is an act of submission to God. We're reminding ourselves, we belong to you, you're in charge, this is for you, God. Keep that in mind. The worship service, the song service, all the beautiful music that's performed by the band is not to make you feel good. It's not to make you feel good. And the thing that will quench your Christian life quicker than anything else is that you start viewing everything that's for God as something for you. I didn't like that song today. Well, you know what? It wasn't for you. It was for Him. Did you participate in it? Oftentimes our worship is cheapened because we do it for self-gratification. Yeah, I like that song. Mm, On a scale of 1 to 10, give it a 6. Easy to dance to. (laughs) Worship is directed to God. Now the result is joy, peace, the releasing of burdens. But when that band kicks up, there's only one person in the audience. It's not you, it's not me, it's God. Dr. D. James Kennedy said, Most people think of the church as a drama, with the minister as the chief actor, God as the prompter, and the laity as the critic. What is actually the case is the congregation is the chief actor, the minister is the prompter, and God is the critic. Oh, it turns the tables around, doesn't it? God is watching. How are they worshiping? Are they worshiping? Are they entering in to giving me adoration and praise and submitting before me? That's why we start the service. The song service, contrary to popular belief, is not to prepare us for the Word. The song service is to get our perspective. We're talking to God. We're adoring and submitting unto Him before God speaks through His Word. And so it is with our own personal prayer life. Mature prayer is balanced. Mature prayer begins with a sense of who we're addressing. Adoration. Humble adoration. Oh, God, you're great. You're awesome. We remind ourselves of what you do, who you are. And our response is worship and praise. When I was a baby, I communicated very effectively, but very primitively with my mom and dad. When I wanted something, all I knew how to say was, it worked. It was very effective. I got their attention. They'd come running and they'd find out, now why is he crying? Is that because his diapers need to be changed? Is it a cry because he's hungry or he's thirsty? And of course moms can discern. It's sort of like interpreting tongues. They can interpret every cry of a baby that to dads and other people seem all the same. But I would cry, they would respond. Later on, I learned a more effective way of communicating with them. I learned how to speak. And that was very effective because I could be very specific. I want my bottle. I want to be changed. 
I want to watch TV. I want a new toy. Now later on, my communication developed even further. It was no longer a cry. It was no longer a I want, I need. I grew up a little bit. I learned how to manipulate cleverly my parents, as all children do. But as I matured and became an adult, though I don't always act like one, I am one, my communication to my parents has greatly improved. I call them long distance. They live in California. They're approaching their 80s. I don't get on the phone and go, Wah! Oh, it's just skip, honey. Nor do I say, I want this. I need that. Nor do I try to manipulate them. In fact, at this stage in my life and at the stage that they're in in their life, I am more concerned for them. I begin by saying, how are you? I love you. I miss you. Now, so it is in our relationship with God. A very immature person will say, I need, I want, I must have, or wah, or whatever. Don't try manipulating. You're dealing with God. He knows the scheme from the beginning. But mature communication is where you rise above that level and your first concern is adoring the one you're speaking to. He's great. He's awesome. He's Adonai. That's mature praying. That's balanced. That doesn't mean that God is not interested in your request. He is. He asks you to ask Him. He delights in giving. But a mature relationship with God and the first strand on that rope of essential prayer is humble adoration. Prayer is not a mail order house, folks. Dial 1-800-CLAIM-IT and just kind of name whatever you want and you'll get it. It's beautiful when a Christian's concern is loving the Lord, adoring Him. I love that little story about the girl who decided to go to her room for a little while and pray. Mom, I'm going to pray. She didn't come out for a long time. She came out later on and Mom said, what were you doing in there so long? You said you went in there to pray. She said, I was, Mommy. Well, what was your prayer like? Oh, I was just sitting around telling Jesus I love Him and He was sitting around telling me that He loves me and we were just loving each other. That's beautiful prayer. Adoration. The second strand on this rope of effective prayer is honest confession. Humble adoration and then honest confession. True confessions before God. Now let's look at verse 5 and we'll read to verse 15. And notice how many times he uses the word we and us. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. 
Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Thirteen times he uses the word we. He didn't have to do this. Did you know that in the Bible there's not one bad thing spoken of or character flaw that is mentioned about the man Daniel? He's one of the few, the very few, that the Bible has nothing bad to say about him at all. He lived an exemplary life. He lived an obedient life. We've seen this so far as we've studied this book. And yet he says, we, 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 instead of pushing off his people, he comes and he embraces them. He says, I'm also a part of the people. I'm also a part of the nation Israel. We have sinned. That's revealing because I think a lot of us don't pray that way. I think a lot of us like to excuse ourselves and pray for them. Lord, our country, they, those people. Wait a minute. Have you ever sinned? Did you ever have any character flaws in your own life? Was there ever wickedness in your own heart? I think that you and I added to the sins of our country, don't you? And so Daniel says, we, it was a confession, an honest confession before God. You say, well, Daniel wasn't very mature. Excuse me, I think that one of the marks of maturity is, th is that he's willing to say, I'm sorry. Those two hardest words in the English language to say, I am sorry. That's three words, I am sorry. I have sinned. I'm, contraction, sorry. That would be two words. It's hard to say. And it's a mark of maturity. In fact, as I read the scripture, the closer a person gets to God, the more readily that person is able to say, humbly, I have sinned. Forgive me and confess their sin. A person who says, well, listen, I have a few flaws, but I'm not as bad as the next person or as everybody else. I'm not wicked. That shows that that person is very distant from God. Paul the Apostle, the great Apostle, said, this is a faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He didn't put a period after sinners which would imply others, but he included himself, of whom I am chief. Leonard Ravenhill said, The self-sufficient do not pray, the self-satisfied will not pray, and the self-righteous cannot pray. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount by saying what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
doesn't mean spiritually poor as much as it means I am poverty-stricken spiritually before God. I am poverty-stricken before God. And I admit that. I have a need. I am a sinner. I have sinned. That's the first step to a right relationship with God. Now, observe a few things with me, will you? Beginning in verse 5 about this confession. In verse 5, he mentions sin, iniquity, wickedness, rebellion. Notice the terms he uses. He doesn't say hang up, character flaw, codependent situation. He calls it sin, iniquity, and wickedness. And the prayer reveals that Daniel has a very clear-cut knowledge of what's going on. That he has sinned, his people have sinned, that God has moral precepts that are unalterable, that have been sinned against, and because they've been broken, God will judge. He understands all that, as reflected in this prayer. Look at verse 6. To specify it, Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and princes, to our fathers and the people of the land. One of the things that Daniel is praying about is the fact that people have not paid attention to the Word of God or to spiritual authority. They have shunned spiritual authority. It's always frightening to see that. It's frightening when week after week we see people pour through the doors of this church and they say, I want counseling. Some do, but some don't. Some say, I want counseling. What they really want is accommodation. Pat me on the back, tell me that I'm fine the way I am, and smile real big as I leave. But don't tell me that I need to change in any way. So people will come in and say, I'm living with my girlfriend and we are sexually involved. Well, that's immoral. Well, no, I love her. So it's not immoral. It's immoral for other people, but we're in love, so it's not immoral. Or, well, I've divorced my wife because we didn't get along and now I want to marry this guy. Well, listen, that's unbiblical to uh, to marry and divorce under those circumstances. Well, then, I'm going to leave and go elsewhere. In other words, I'm going to find someone that agrees with me and will pat me on the back and let me continue in my sin. Just don't tell me what to do, whatever you do. Daniel said that is one of the things that caused judgment upon the people of Israel. They didn't pay attention to the Word of God. He goes further in verse 7 and 8 and mentions shame, something that is lost in our culture. We do everything we can to get rid of shame. Look at verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. I know a lot of people that would reverse that. I'm righteous. God is at fault. Shows arrogance. Daniel says, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But shame of face as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all of Israel, those near, those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Oh, excuse me, that's verse 9. Verse 8, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face to our kings, princes, fathers, because we have sinned against you. You know that shame is a good sign, not a bad sign. You live in a society that's not trying to, that's trying to have you confess guilt and shame away, and you're a victim, you're not responsible for your past. Whether you're a petty thief, or an alcoholic, or an axe murderer, or you spill somebody else's coffee on your leg and burn it, it is not your fault. You are simply a victim. 
There is a victimization of the American public going on. Do you realize that? You're the adult child of a weird parent. They did it. You're not responsible for your actions and we feel sorry for you. Well, it's okay to feel sorry for someone and to help them, but the buck stops with individual behavior. Shame of face, he says, belongs to us. Now, one of the hindrances to prayer is unconfessed sin. One of the hindrances to prayer is unconfessed sin. If you are noticing that your prayer life seems to go nowhere, perhaps you pray and it just sort of bounces off the ceiling and flops on the floor. Perhaps it's because there's unconfessed sin. David said in Psalm 66, verse 18, If I regard, that is, hold on to or cling to, iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, because sin, transgression, without being confessed, breaks fellowship with God. Then uh, in Isaiah 59, the prophet said, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face so that he will not hear you. Now, does that mean God is unable to hear? No, it means that God refuses to hear that prayer. Do you see how important a prayer of confession and repentance is? People say, oh, I pray all the time. If you don't pray through Jesus and have your sin taken care of, you are just spewing out words to the wind. God refuses to hear. That's why the first prayer must be a prayer of, I am a sinner. Oh God, forgive me by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we're tallying up the statistics in Time magazine. 78% of Americans pray, but it's prayer to no avail. I was interested to find out that Madonna prays before every one of her concerts. She gets her group together, they hold hands, they get in a group circle and they pray. Then she goes out on stage and does all sorts of lewd things and says all sorts of garbage words. She even wears a Satan ring on late night talk shows. So it's not a prayer of confession and repentance. Oh, but she prayed. So what? Prayer to be effective prayer must include humble adoration and honest confession. God cannot forgive and will not forgive outside of confession. Unless you name what it is, God will not forgive it. Proverbs 28:13. He who covers his sins will not prosper. How many people do you know trying to do that? Well, it's not that bad. Well, I've got an excuse. Well, there's a reason. He who covers his sins will not prosper. Whoever confesses and forsakes, the verse continues, will find mercy. Whoever confesses and forsakes his sins will find mercy. So there's that rope. It includes as a first strand... Humble adoration, second strand, honest confession, and now look at verse 16, heartfelt intercession as the third strand. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray that your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because our sins for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes, 
and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for the city, your city, your people that are called by your name. Daniel, after reading Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, we discovered last week, he's reading the scroll of the prophets. He understands that 70 years are about finished, that this is all a judgment of God. He immediately goes to prayer. As he makes confession before God, as he adores the God that he's speaking to, After making confession, he then prays for Jerusalem, which is several hundred miles away from him, and for the people of the land who will return. He's not one of them. He notices that the leadership has become corrupt. He confesses on behalf of them, and then he prays for them, and he prays for his own nation. When Edward Hale was the chaplain to the United States Senate, somebody asked him one day, and he responded sort of humorously. He said, "Uh, Mr. Hale... When you look at our nation, do you pray for its leaders? He said, no, when I look at our leaders, I pray for our nation. When Daniel looked at the leaders of Israel had become so corrupt, the king, the prophets, the priests, he intercedes now on behalf of them to God. Daniel's not just praying for himself now. He's now praying for them who will return, and Daniel actually stays in Babylon. This is called intercession, and prayer to be effective goes beyond the realm of just me, though I want to underscore something. God loves to hear from you. God loves you to pour out your needs. Don't get me wrong in this. But so often, that is the extent of our prayer. Daniel's prayer included adoration, confession, and intercession, praying for other people. This is where prayer is tough. See, it's easy for me to pray for me. It's the easiest thing in the world. I'm in touch with what I need. I'm in touch with what I need more than you're in touch with what I need. I see it. I feel it. Oh, God, please. It's easy to pray that way. It's easy to worship. To praise God is enjoyable. It's fulfilling. To deal with God directly is wonderful. But when I go outside of those two areas and start praying for other people, especially people I've never met, that's hard. That's labor. Listen to what Paul said concerning Epaphras, his fellow laborer. He said, he's a bondservant of Christ, laboring fervently for you in prayer. Laboring fervently for you in prayer. That's intercession. That you might stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. I get distracted much easier when I pray for others than when I pray for me. This is where it becomes labor. You buckle down. You've got your prayer list. You've got countries and missionaries to pray for. That's effective as you go outside of yourself and you pray for them. But it's a bit of zing to your Christian life. Spark. I think a lot of Christians have a spiritual midlife crisis. That is, they get up to a plateau and then pretty soon it's just the doldrums. The wind isn't blowing anymore. They read their Bible, but it's just stale. They worship, but it's just not there. They wonder, what's happening? I'm going to church. I'm reading the Bible. I'm going to kinship. I'll tell you what has happened in many cases. You've become spiritually fat. Everything is an inlet in your life. You don't have an outlet. It's, I want this for me, and I've got to get fed, and I've got to get nurtured. 
And if you do that all the time, you'll just be bloated. You need an outlet so that when you receive God's truth and God's power, there's somebody in your life you're praying for, and in interceding for them, you'll also minister to them. You'll be moved into action for them later on. You need an outlet. Not just an inlet, you need an outlet. Because many people, let's face it, church is a bless me club. It is a bless me club. They shop around for the best blessing instead of the best area of service. There was a small group of exclusive Christians that were meeting in an auditorium with a banner outside, Jesus only. The wind came and blew the first three letters off, really revealing what they were there for. Us only, read the sign, after G-E, uh, J-E-S were blown off. Now, in verse 23, as he's praying, At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. I am still impressed with the fact that before he ended the prayer, while he is interceding, the angel comes and just says, basically, you don't even have to finish, we get the gist. It's answered. And then he reveals to Daniel the 70 weeks. Question. Why is sovereign unlimited God willing to condescend himself to take in consideration the feeble prayers of us before he works. Why does God even respond to our prayers? Most of the time we don't know how to pray or pray what we should pray for anyway, the Bible says. So why does God condescend to work through the prayers of his people? It wasn't until Daniel prayed that the answer came and God did respond to Daniel's intercession. His heartfelt intercession was heard in heaven. It's not that God needs your consent. But God prefers your consent. Did you know that? Did you know that God will often wait until your own heart is so stirred with an issue that you bring it before Him and then God will respond to that? You say, why is that? Because God loves to do things with His people. Paul said, we are co-laborers with Christ. Here's an analogy you might be able to pick up on. Dads, have you ever had your small child come up? While you're working one day, you've got a time element, a timeline. He says, Dad, I'm going to help you today. I'm going to build that fence with you, Daddy. And you're going, hey, great, 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 great. I could build it a lot faster alone. You're thinking that. You're thinking, I don't want him to help me. It's going to take too long. But you love when he says, Daddy, I want to help you, because you love his fellowship. You love to co-labor. At the end of the day, you will have built the fence, made it for all of his mistakes, and he'll stand there proudly with a hammer. I built this fence. God incorporates our activities graciously because he loves communion with us. So we intercede for people. We pray for people. God answers because God loves the fellowship and the communion. Finally and fourthly, the fourth strand of this prayer rope is holy motivation. First is humble adoration. Honest confession is number two. Heartfelt intercession, number three. And finally, holy motivation. And I want you to look at verse 16, and I'm going to emphasize a couple words. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your holy city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins, 
For the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And listen to this. For the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. In verse 19, after this intercession, do not delay for your own sake. You see, his motivation in prayer was not so much that the walls get built in Jerusalem and that the people return home. The big issue with Daniel is that Jerusalem is in ruins, which means all the people of the world look at it and go, what kind of a God is this that would allow this to happen? Well, it's a God who loves His people to judge them. But now, Lord, build it up again. Forgive us for Your sake, for Your glory. Now, this is effective prayer when your big concern is not you, but God. You say, well, why should I? I've got a lot of concerns. Well, God is concerned for you. He's got your best interests at heart. Have His best interests at your heart. What did Jesus say that we should seek first? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Many times our prayers are ineffective because, again, they're all dealing with us. And aren't you glad that God doesn't say yes to every prayer? I'll tell you what, if all of our prayers centered on the glory of God, we'd see a lot of prayers answered. And you might want to evaluate before you pray for something. Will this give God greatest glory? Well, I don't know. Well, then just put it before Him and say, Your will be done. Your will be done. Many times we plead, God, please, 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 please. And God says, No, 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 no. You say, You're not a loving God. Oh, yes, I am. I love you so much, I know that if I gave that to you right now, it wouldn't be good for you. Aren't you glad God has said no in the past? There's been a lot of things that I prayed for and I'd step back and go, Oh, God, thank you for saying no to that one. Whoo, wow. There's the legend about King Midas, the Fergian king who performed acts of kindness. It caught the notice of the gods. The gods would grant Midas anything he wanted. What did he want? That everything he touched turned to gold. God said, You've got it. He didn't know that that blessing was a curse. Everything he touched turned to gold, including food. That which he thought would be a blessing became a curse. I'm glad God has said no to many things. God is concerned, and I should be concerned with what brings glory to God the most. John Walvoord said, Prayer is like a check that has to be countersigned by two parties. And so you sign it, send it off to heaven. If Jesus co-signs it, no matter how big that check is written for, you've got it. If He didn't co-sign it, you won't get it. And so we pray and we wonder, is this the will of God? Will He co-sign on the check? Daniel's concern was for the sake of God. Now I want to conclude with these verses. Look at verse 4, verse 9, and verse 18. And let's just read verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. His motivation is for the glory of God, and he kind of closes this by saying, Would you just forgive us, not because we deserve it, but because you're a merciful God? Here's the great thing about prayer. How far are you from God today? I don't know. I don't know what you've been doing the last few weeks, months, or years. But you're one step back to Him. 
If you say, well, you know, I'm going to clean up my act and I'll be back. I'll be back, God. You can count on me. But let, let me clean up my act first. Now, the only step back to God is, God, I'm a sinner. Would you please forgive me? Because you're merciful. Because you're merciful. My son was playing with his cousin while she was visiting from Michigan. The first day, they played great together. They were like angels. Second day, a little bit on each other's nerves. Third day, it was altogether a different ball game. Now, you who have multiple children at home know this to be re- daily reality. This is different for us. We have an only child, and we have to get others his same age group or peer pressure to, to experience this. And one day they were playing upstairs, and we heard two blood-curdling screams. We knew it wasn't a good sign. We were right. We went upstairs. Both were crying. My son's cousin was standing in the corner, screaming and crying with a bloody scratch down one of her legs. My son had, with his foot, pushed her off the bed. Her leg fell upon something sharp and scratched it. We looked over at Nathan. He's in the other corner. He's crying as well. And we examined his leg, and there was a full set of teeth marks (laughs) where she had retaliated. And we were so upset at them. Wanted to restrict them, discipline them. Of course, I think they had meted out their own punishment. (laughs) Gave them a good talking to and did the parental deal. Nathan comes to the edge of the stairs a little while later and goes, Mom, can we go to the store? Can you buy us a toy? (laughs) The look on my wife's face is worth a million bucks. (laughs) How could you ask for something like that after what you've done? She said, kids, come down here. She thought she would use it as an object lesson. Do you deserve to go to the store and get a toy after what you've done? All day you've been at each other. And then this incident, do you deserve it? No, you're right. We don't deserve it. Forget it. No, wait, 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 wait. What do you deserve? I deserve a spanking. And then she used that as a great way to teach the Word of God. You know, the Bible talks about justice, son. Justice means you get what you deserve. What you deserve is a spanking and restriction. That's what you deserve. The Bible also talks about a thing called mercy. That means we withhold what you deserve. You deserve restriction and a spanking, we don't give it to you. That's mercy. Then there's another thing the Bible talks about, and that's grace. That means blessings conferred upon you. We didn't use these words. We give you a blessing that you don't deserve. We give you something that you don't deserve. That's grace. Now, again, as you don't want to do this all the time, parents, with your kids, because they'll grow up to be really radical. You want to discipline them. But she was mixing the discipline in with the mercy and grace because he had the boldness to ask. So she said, Though you have done foolishly, Though you have hurt each other, though you deserve a spanking, and though you don't deserve anything else, I'm going to take you to the store, I'm going to buy you a toy and bless you. And that's grace. Because that's how God often deals with us. He just kind of stood there like, huh? He'd never had that before. But I'll tell you what, that night as we tucked them into bed and they prayed, his little cousin, who doesn't get spiritual training at home at all, prayed, Dear God, thank you for that mercy and grace thing. Amen. She really, really picked up on that lesson. However far you are from God today, 
If you turn and cling to His mercy, recognizing that you are a sinner, that you don't deserve it, as I am a sinner and I don't deserve it, but God, that's not the issue. The issue is you're a merciful, forgiving God. In a more modern story of the prodigal son, over in Thailand, a young boy named Sawat left his home and dishonored his family. He had come to Bangkok to escape the dullness of village life. The story goes like this. He found excitement, and while he prospered in a sordid lifestyle, he found popularity as well. When he first arrived, he visited a hotel, unlike any he had ever seen in his life. Every room had a window facing the hallway, and in every room sat a girl. The older ones smiled and laughed. Others, 12 or 13 years old or younger, looked nervous and frightened. That visit began Sawat's venture into Bangkok's world of prostitution. It began innocently enough, but he was quickly caught like a small piece of wood in a raging river. Its force was too powerful and swift for him, the current too strong. Soon he was selling opium to customers and propositioning tourists in the hotels. He even went so low as to actually help buy and sell young girls, some of them only 9 and 10 years old. It was a nasty business. And he was one of the most important of the young businessmen. Then the bottom dropped out of his world. He hit a string of bad luck. He was robbed, and while trying to climb back to the top, he was arrested. The word went out in the underworld that he was a police spy. He finally ended up living in a shanty by the city trash pile. Sitting back in his shack, he thought about his family, especially his father, a simple Christian man from a small southern village near the Malaysian border. He remembered his dad's parting words, I'm waiting for you. He wondered whether his father would still be waiting for him after all that he had done to dishonor the family name. Would he be welcome in his home? Word of Sawat's lifestyle had long ago filtered back to the village. Finally, he devised a plan. Dear father, he wrote, I wanted to come home, but I don't know if you will receive me after all that I've done. I have sinned greatly, father. Please forgive me. On Saturday night, I will be on the train that goes through our village. If you're still waiting for me, will you tie a piece of cloth on that po tree in front of our house? Signed, Sawat. On the train ride, he reflected on his life over the past few months and knew that his father had every right to deny him. As the train finally neared the village, he churned with anxiety. What would he do if there was no white cloth on that tree? Sitting opposite him was a kind stranger who noticed how nervous his fellow passenger had become. Finally, Sawat could stand the pressure no longer. He blurted out his story in a torrent of words. As they entered the village, Sawat said, Oh, sir, I cannot bear to look. Can you watch for me? What if my father will not receive me back? Sawat buried his face between his knees. Do you see it, sir? It's the only house with the poetry. Young man, your father did not hang one piece of cloth. Look, he's covered the whole tree with cloth. Sawat could hardly believe his eyes. The branches were laden with tiny white squares. In the front yard, his old father jumped up and down, jealously or joyously waving a piece of white cloth, and then ran in halting steps beside the train. When it stopped at the little station, he threw his arms around his son, embracing him with joys of tear, tears of joy, and he said, I have been waiting for you, he exclaimed. It's the modern story of the prodigal son. 
Daniel relied upon God's mercy. God, you're merciful. Would you forgive? I've been waiting for you. Effective prayer then begins with the acknowledgement that we need Him. And in confession and repentance, we cling to His mercy. Father, we do that right now. You know our inward thoughts, our lifestyle, our behavior, deeds done that we don't want anyone to know about. We ask for your forgiveness. We confess them as sin. We accept the responsibility. And we cling to your forgiveness and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.